Leadership Next is powered by the folks at Deloitte, who, like me, are super focused on how CEOs can lead in the context of disruption and devolving societal expectations. Welcome to Leadership Next, the podcast about the changing rules of business leadership. I'm Alan Murray, and I'm here with my incomparable (laughs) co-host, Ellen McGirt. I love that, Alan. Thank you very much. You are my go-to numbers guy. You know that. So I'm going to ask you a question right up front. How would you describe the stock market's performance over the last few months? <laughs> well, I'm I'm older than you, Ellen. <laughs> Not by much. <laughs> and I well, well remember the late 1990s. I got to say there's a lot going on right now that feels yeah. like then. But we can get into that today, right? We sure can, because our guest today has a front row seat to all the drama. She's Adina Friedman, the CEO of NASDAQ. She originally joined the company as an intern in 1993. Now, that's a trajectory you like to see, and was named CEO in 2017. That made her the first woman to ever lead a major U.S. stock exchange. Yeah, and then recently she was picked by the editors of Fortune to be on our world's greatest leaders list. I think that's a pretty remarkable accomplishment and it was yes. it was primarily because of her leadership on the issue of board diversity. Yep. Welcome to Leadership Next, Adina. Great to have you here. It's great to be here. So thanks very much. Let's start with that issue that got you onto the world's greatest leaders list. You took a bold stand uh, saying companies need to disclose the diversity of their boards and you've gotten some pushback. Well, uh, I think that anytime you, any company decides to make change like that, you know, debate will ensue because we're looking at a significant change to the disclosure obligations and responsibilities of 3,000 listed companies. But it's something that we've obviously felt that was very important next step in terms of the quality and oversight of the boards of companies that choose to co and tap the public markets. You got quite a bit of feedback from the Wall Street Journal on this move. It was it was not without its controversy, but just from my back of the envelope, keeping an eye on board appointments over the pandemic, it seems to have been effective. Well, I think there are a few things. First of all, let's just take a little bit of a step back. The proposal is a rule change, and therefore the SEC has to approve the rule change. It's going through a, a standard rule process. And so we would hope that the SEC will make a decision sometime in the summer months I think in the meantime, you are right, there's been some debate and some public debate. But when you look at the actual record of comments that have been submitted to the SEC around the proposal, about 85% of the comment letters, and there have been over 200 comment letters submitted, are positive. And many of them come from very prominent investor groups, corporate clients and others, as well as advocacy groups that really look at this issue deeply. And they gave very substantive comments And so we feel very good about the fact that we're leaning into something that is clearly important for investors, that is well supported by by many corporates, as well as other groups that are choosing to weigh in on it. I'm putting my name forward for board seats. For whoever's looking, (laughs) having struggled to diversify, I'm here to help. Well, there are (laughs) so many people, so many great qualified candidates to go on to corporate boards. It's an exciting time to give more and more people opportunity to be part of the corporate environment. You know, we had a great conversation on this topic with Ursula Burns, the former sure CEO did. of Xerox. And what she said, she was working with a lot of big company boards that were trying to diversify. And she would say, look, I know lots of people. I can make introductions. What are you looking for? And they would say, 
we want somebody who's been a CEO before. <laughs> she said, wait a minute. You are not going to diversify if you keep going back to the same pool over and over again. Right. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a really matter of diversifying the networks of people that you're going and, and talking to. And then also one of the things that we've done is on the back of the proposal. So the proposal is to disclose the diversity characteristics of your board. But then we encourage companies to continue to diversify their boards by putting out some goals where we would ask them to have at least one woman and one underrepresented minority or LGBT member of their board. But then on the back of that, we're offering some free services to our listed companies to help them find qualified diverse candidates yeah. with for a partnership with Equilar. So we do realize that in order to make this successful, we have to help our companies diversify their networks so they can find great candidates. And that's part of what we're going to do. Well, I vote for Ellen as long as she can keep doing this podcast. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> You're not going to get rid of me that easily. But, Adina, take us back to the early days of the conversations around the proposal, because it, it must have been an interesting internal debate about what to propose and what the language should be. And how did you get to that position? Yeah, we actually had a very rigorous debate internally. And then we went out and spoke to a few trusted people outside the organization. You know, it's always a, a struggle. On the one hand, you want to get as much feedback as you can before you go forth with something like this. And on the other hand, you have to be careful not to get ahead. And obviously, we wanted to be able to do it in an organized way. And we had to obviously communicate with the SEC as well. So, so we had to be pretty selective in how we work with outside people. But I think that in terms of the internal debate, we actually put together a very great group of people from our legal team, our listings team, as well as the broader NASDAQ organization to debate and discuss how we should structure the proposal, what's been done before, what's proven, you know, what, what does the research tell us in terms of, of the um, types of benefits you get from diversity? So therefore, how should we structure that diversity proposal? And then all of the evidence that kind of supports this notion that the governance of companies matter in terms of risk controls and financial performance, and therefore diversity mm -hmm. is a component of that that's important. So we had a lot of internal debate, and then we came out with our proposal, and that then launches a comment process with the SEC. So we did make one refinement to our proposal on the back of the initial comments that gave some flexibility to smaller companies. If a board is five or fewer members, they can have one diverse member as opposed to two. So we kind of came out with that on the back of some of the comments. So it's been a really interesting process, Ellen. I mean, it's an important process to go through. This is a significant change to the governance of public companies. And so we like the rigor. It's important to the future of McMurray Industries. Exactly. <laughs> oh, I like that. I like that. You just came up with that. That's good. We should patent that right away. I'm here with Joe Yukazoglu, who is CEO of Deloitte U.S. and had the good sense to sponsor this podcast. Joe, thanks for being with us, and thanks for your support of our second season. Thanks, Alan. Pleasure to be here. Joe, recent CEO transitions point to the stark lack of black leadership at Fortune 500 companies. It'll be down to less than five CEOs and a broader leadership problem at those companies, which affects the pipeline to the top. How are organizations tackling that? Alan, we're seeing an intense focus across our client base, and this has moved well beyond the supportive statements that most companies made last summer. There's a recognition that that was the easy part. The real work is making certain that 
there's a sustainment of intensity past the headline to actually address the underlying systemic barriers, to get behind the root causes, to make the changes in core business processes around how we're sourcing talent more inclusively, how we're driving equity into assignments, into promotions, to remove the systemic barriers that have historically existed. And I am seeing real change across corporate America. This is not a new problem, obviously, but you think there is a new seriousness in attacking it? Well, I think it goes beyond seriousness to alignment of interests and a recognition amongst business leaders that this is core to the strategy, that those companies that do this well will be more successful in their markets and will be a more attractive destination for talent. Thank you, Joe. So let's go back to the issue that Ellen started us with. What's going on in the stock market? This has been a pretty crazy time. We've seen some pretty wild valuations. Lots of companies have chosen to go public because it seems like a good time to get investors to pay for those companies. We have a lot of individual investors playing who don't have experience doing things like the GameStop run-up. And of course, behind all of that, we just have an enormous amount of money in the system created by the Fed and the government. What's your sense of what's going on? And should we celebrate it or be worried about it? Well, I think that let's start with saying our view as a marketplace is we our job as NASDAQ is to democratize finance, to democratize the capital markets, and to make it possible for every investor to get engaged directly or indirectly in the growth and opportunity that comes from equity investments. So we generally see more investor engagement as a good thing. I think that when you also look at what were the trends coming into the pandemic, we already, you know, we were coming into 2020 with a very strong economic backdrop. There are trillions and trillions of dollars of investable capital looking to be put to work. We already had a very strong pipeline of companies looking to tap the public markets before the pandemic. And then the pandemic hit and everything kind of took a pause. And obviously investors were concerned and worried and therefore you had the March phenomenon with the volatility. But I think what happened was number one, the Fed acted very quickly to ease monetary policy, lower interest rates, which makes equities more attractive as an investment to begin with because they're better than the alternatives. And the number two, the fact that you had free commissions now, basically you had kind of commission-free trading available through retail platforms that had come into place just a couple months prior. Number three, you had, um, as you said, fiscal stimulus that also put money into the hands of, of everyday people all over the country. And there was kind of not a lot to do. <laughs> so you had a lot of investors and others really focusing in, whether they're professional investors saying, you know what, I'm just going to spend my time really focusing on the markets, or you had what we call retail investors really getting engaged in the markets. And so I think all of that drove to a lot of demand for equities. That then allowed the markets to kind of reopen for capital raising very quickly. And we had some companies tap the markets in April and then May. And then suddenly we had hundreds of companies going out into the public markets in the latter half of 2020 and the first quarter of 2021. And so I have to say it kind of unleashed a lot of demand, but that demand was already there. It just kind of got amplified by the pandemic in some ways. Well, Ellen and I are going to do our IPO later this year, so pre prepare for us. Yeah, <laughs> I want to change the subject just a little bit because we've been through such an extraordinary year and so much has changed and so much has accelerated. And I want to get your view of 
which of those changes are permanent, particularly how leadership and how you lead a large organization like yours is going to change because of what we've been through? Well, I think there are a couple of things. First of all, <laughs> this sounds like the veneer is off the corporate world, right? So in other words, right. being true to yourself, showing your full self, both you know at the office and at home, and being accessible and communicative across your teams, I think are going to be things that really do last for a very long time. And I'm very excited about that. You know, before the pandemic, I would do a very structured town hall once a quarter with all of our employees. Well, now I get on the phone on Zoom every other week. And we have some informal conversation. We have some formal presentations. We we just are so much more communicative. We do a lot of Q&A. We are just, I just feel like there's just much more of a sense of team, much more of a sense of them knowing who I am as a person, in addition to, you know, they know my dogs, you know, things like that. <laughs> um, and I think that's actually really helped because I think it allows us all to have a more authentic experience working together. So I think that's a big change. I think obviously the flexibility that employees are looking for in terms of both at home and in office is an area that is clearly a hot topic, but one that I think we'll be iterating around for the next several months, if not a couple of years, to try to find the right balance. And I think also the need for us to really focus in on being able to connect people with technology. And that I'm hoping there are elements of the world of capital markets that'll change forever. I'll give you an example. I'm hoping that IPO roadshows can be virtual forever. I'm hoping that non-deal <laughs> wow. roadshows can be virtual forever. So that yeah. we have the ability, it's so much more efficient for the corporates, it's more efficient for the investors. And really, when you think about an IPO meeting, it's 45 minutes. So it's not like you're having a lunch or a dinner. You're not really getting to know the investors in a deep way. You're sharing information in a very structured way. So I think a lot of the virtual world can remain for that type of interaction. So I'm, I'm excited, Alan, that there's some, I think, good changes that have come from this. Speaking of technology, just to date myself as a reporter, when I first started studying capital markets, they were traded in fractions. And the tickets were a yellow sheet of paper went here and a pink sheet of paper went there. And I just read a piece that you wrote about the role of AI is going to be playing in the infrastructure of marketplaces. And I'm curious, in sort of a big picture way, how you see these new technologies doing exactly what you started out talking about, democratizing access to capital markets, because there's lots and lots of people who don't understand them and still can't participate. Yeah, I remember the yellow sheets and pink sheets, too. <laughs> and I remember, you know, my father was uh, an investor. And so we'd sit down every morning. He'd sit there and pour through the stock tables and the paper. You know, so I remember right. all of that. I think that the whole, you know, Nasdaq actually turns 50 this year. We turned 50 in February. But when wow. you think about we were born to electronify the markets, that was why we were created, was to create a more, an electronic stock market that essentially democratize access to the markets, meaning no matter where you were in the country, you had equal access into our systems. And we even governed the network so that if you were in California versus New York, the order would show up in our systems at the same time through the network. And so we've always kind of had this notion that you don't need to be in one room with papers flying around. You need to be connected electronically to maximize access to the markets. 
Now, flash forward 50 years, and we now are talking about machine learning and cloud-based technology. So we don't even, you know, over time, we expect that markets will move and migrate into a cloud environment, which means you don't have to maintain all that infrastructure from a data center perspective and still have the right deterministic experience for investors. You also have the ability to harness just massive amounts of data. I would say that actually the capital markets are probably one of the most data-intensive sectors in the world, mm -hmm. but also the first to use data in a very sophisticated way. Maybe not the first, but one of the first sectors to use data in a very sophisticated way. So now you apply all the ability to harness just so much information, reach conclusions from it, and drive investment strategies and trading strategies in a more digital way, I think is actually the right next iteration of what the markets will become. Adina, we've been talking about all the ways that the world has changed since the pandemic and the acceleration of so many things, technology, participation in the markets, workplace culture. One of the things that has happened over the last year is also an acceleration of this notion that a corporation has responsibilities that go beyond its responsibilities to its shareholders, its direct financial owners, environmental, social governance. You have a phrase that you use, cooperative capitalism. I wonder if you can explain what cooperative capitalism means to you. Yeah, sure. I mean, even before the pandemic, you had the Business Roundtable who made a statement as to what's the purpose of a corporation, and they really expanded that definition and the purpose statement. And I think that was a moment when you know many companies are saying, well, we're kind of already doing a lot of that, but it allows us to kind of look at it in a structured way. Other companies started to say, okay, well, how can we look at our priorities and make sure that we are addressing the needs of our employees, the needs of our communities, the needs of our clients, and of course, the needs of our shareholders. It's kind of a balance across all of those constituents that drives to a successful, sustainable, long-term business. And I believe that that has been solidified as part of the ethos of corporate America, you know, the corporate world through the pandemic. And now we sit on the other side of it, or we're hoping to sit on the other side of it soon, I should say. And I think that you've got this lasting change in terms of how can companies do the right thing while they're doing well for their shareholders. And I think that there's a, you know, I think there's a common view that that is entirely possible. <laughs> and cooperative capitalism to me is both that notion of cooperating both with all of your constituents to drive to this net result that does give investors the right growth and the right savings opportunities. It also means working with the government. So I think that there's so many examples through the pandemic of corporates cooperating with the government, whether it's converting their manufacturing plants to manufacture PPP, whether it's Moderna and Pfizer and all J&J &J and all of the pharma and biotech companies coming together to cooperate both with themselves and with the government to solve this problem, whether it's also the infrastructure opportunities on the back of the pandemic where they're going to, I think there's going to be an enormous amount of collaboration between the private sector and the public sector to solve major problems and major issues that we all know we can do better at as a country. So I think that notion of cooperative capitalism is how capitalism will evolve and recognizing that companies, the private sector, we can be nimble and really innovative. We can scale up and size up quickly to address issues and to solve problems. The government 
can have huge impact when they do choose to solve a problem. And so that collaboration, I think, is going to be an important next wave. Adina, that is a perfect encapsulation of what Ellen and I are trying to do on this podcast every week. So uh, we thank you for for doing that. And and maybe you can come back and co-host with us, (laughs) because you get it. Uh, We would love to have you back anytime. Ellen, anything we missed? I don't think so. If you have just time, I don't want to ruin that happy ending there, though. I (laughs) did have a question about metrics. If I could ask you to put your CFO hat back on. We are really thinking hard about how to measure success in a cooperative capitalist world. Given that our accounting standards have been measuring and rewarding a very specific type of financial outcomes for you know decades and decades and decades, what kind of metrics are you thinking about? First of all, I do think it's important always to keep that in mind. I mean, so what we look at is return on invested capital. So what that does is it allows us to say to our shareholders, we are going to invest our capital and we're going to demonstrate a return from you over time. And so we give them kind of a three to five year time horizon on that return. And then at the same time, so that's a big one for us. I think that the other thing to look at is also the ability for you to drive EPS accretion over time, but also while always investing. So that R&D, like how much of your dollars invested are in R&D versus just running the shop? How much are you driving EPS accretion through revenue growth and, and opportunities to continue to actually expand what you're able to do and not just on cost control? So I think those are the types of things that they're financial metrics, but they allow you to talk to investors in a different way about how you're investing for the future, how you're driving to better results in the future, but also giving a time horizon that's, we give a time horizon of three to five years on Mm -hmm. how we we look at our metrics. And that does give us a longer chance to prove ourselves that we can make longer term decisions that impact and frankly positively affect all of our constituents and that also benefit shareholders. It's such an important point because the longer your time horizon is, the more stakeholder and shareholder interests converge. The real damage gets done in making short-term decisions that may help your bottom line but hurt other people in the process. But over the long term, we all have the same interests. Yeah, uh, I mean, I, I'm, I'm a huge believer in, in, honestly, telling a story for the long term, executing against the long term, showing your KPIs over that period of time so they can measure your success over time, but you're always demonstrating that you have the long-term view of your sustainable growth and your sustainable company in mind. Beautiful. Thank you. Thanks, that was great. Thanks, everyone. It was great to talk to you all. Leadership Next is edited by Nicole Vergala, written by me, Alan Murray, along with my amazing colleagues, Ellen McGirt and Megan Arnold. Our theme is by Jason Snell. Executive producers are Mason Cohn and Megan Arnold. Leadership Next is a production of Fortune Media. Leadership Next episodes are produced by Fortune's editorial team. The views and opinions expressed by podcast speakers and guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Deloitte or its personnel, nor does Deloitte advocate or endorse any individuals or entities featured on the episodes. 